back in the book of Galatians, if you want to turn there to the fifth chapter, as we've been working through it um, time and time again, Paul is drawing this sharp distinction between grace and law. And it's not that the law is unimportant, but rather it is and always will be insufficient for salvation. And that's the point he keeps trying to make over and over again. No matter how hard you and I may try, how much we do, how good we are, it's never going to be enough. We're never able, going to be able to do enough or be good enough to make ourselves right with God. We need his help. We need grace. God to do something for us we're unable and incapable to do, of doing for ourselves, which is what the cross of Jesus is all about. He took our place by paying the penalty for our sins, and it's a free gift. That's the essence of grace. And that's the message of the book of Galatians and the message of the gospel. But it's also where Paul often ran into trouble. One of the major contributions of Judaism in the ancient world was the high ideals of the law and the accompanying moral standards that it set. It calls God's people to live by a higher standard. It expresses God's concern and interest in how we live and how we treat others. And that was something that was truly unique among all the religions of the ancient world. And so when some heard Paul speak and they listened to him, they thought he was actually speaking against the law, trying to do away with it by saying it's unimportant. Because if salvation is by grace through faith, then what you do and how you live didn't matter. People could do as they please. And yet, for many, the law was considered necessary to maintain order by keeping sin in check. And they were afraid what would happen with Paul's message. If anything, they wanted the laws multiplied and life restricted so that they could keep order. They were like the story that Charles Swindoll tells of a friend who had been youth minister in a church that was very traditional and resistant to anything new. And yet this young minister was rather forward-looking and creative, and one day he decided to show the youth group a missionary film. It was simple, safe, black and white, religious-oriented film. The film projector hadn't been off for an hour before a group of leaders in the church called him in and asked him about what he had done. They asked him simply, did you show a film to our young people? Yes. We don't like that. Without arguing, he reasoned, well, I remember when the last missionary conference was here, our church showed slides, and at that point, one of the leaders stopped him and said, if it's still, fine, if it moves, it's sin. You can show slides, but when they start moving, you're getting into sin. The law was meant to control behavior. It wasn't meant to change hearts. It seeks to rein us in, control us, not change us. And it may succeed for a time, but because it fails to address the root issue of sin, which is in our hearts, in the end, it's going to break down and fail. Because it does not bring lasting change to our lives, it's never going to be sufficient for salvation. At some point, in a moment of anger, or stress, or tiredness, 
something's going to happen, someone's going to do something or say something we don't like, our temper or our greed or our selfishness is going to get the better of us, there will be something we want or want to hide, and we're going to fall. No one sets out to sin. But human nature, it just takes over. That human side, and sometimes it doesn't take much for it to get a foothold. There has to be another way, a more effective way than simply trying harder and doing more. And there is, Paul says. He says in verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Where's your focus? On the flesh and its desires, or is it on God and His Spirit, in other words? Each of us are continually facing a choice between what is going to be the guiding force of our lives. My desires or God? Is your attention on your behavior or your heart? Is it on simply avoiding sin and being good or pursuing God and getting closer to Him? You know, don't we tend to focus our thoughts on our actions and our behaviors, what we are trying to do or not do? Our thoughts and our attention get devoted to these things, and God almost becomes an afterthought in the midst of it. We're thinking about this sin or that behavior. And we, without realizing it, we're letting our thoughts take over and take control. Because we're thinking about the sin, we're not thinking about God. And that's the problem, Paul would say, about with willpower. It can only work for a time before your thoughts are consumed by what you're trying so hard not to do. And without realizing it, You're giving it power over your life. Because that's what our thoughts and our heart is set on, rather than on pursuing God. Set your thoughts on things above. If instead of thinking about sin and how to avoid it all the time, more of our attention was on pursuing God to knowing Him, we're not going to be thinking about the things we're trying to avoid. Paul made that very point in the book of Colossians when he said, In Christ you have been set free from the things of this world, so don't submit yourselves to its rules. And he spells out what those rules are. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says these are destined to perish. They're going to pass away because they're merely human commands and teachings. They may sound good, but they lack any value, he says, in being able to really help you. Instead, he tells us what to do. Set your hearts on things above. Instead of thinking about what not to do, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds, he then says, on things above, not the things of this world. And here in Galatians, Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. It's an imperative. It means it's not a suggestion, it's a command. And it's in the present tense, which means it's to be a continuous action, a habitual way of life. And it implies progress, going from where we are now with all our faults to where we need to be, letting God do His work in us, becoming the kind of people we ought to be, merely the kind of people trying to stop doing things. 
Paul is talking in this passage in Galatians about an active pursuit of God with the Spirit itself becoming the source of our life. Charles Stanley said, if the Christian life is simply a matter of doing our best, there was no need for God to send the Holy Spirit to help us. But he did send the Spirit. And so Paul says, learn to walk with him. Verse 18, he says, not just walk in the Spirit, but be led by the Spirit. The word led was, would have been used to take someone by the hand and guide them where they need to go. And he's saying, you're to take the Spirit's hand and let him guide you. The primary way that's done, that the Spirit takes hold of us and guides us, is through his word. Hebrews 4 tells us it's living and active. Are you taking hold of the Spirit's hand, taking in his word, letting it guide your life? Are you reading it? Are you in study of God's word? Paul says it's only when you're walking in the Spirit that you're able to resist gratifying your sinful natures. It's only when you're being led by him that your life will be what it needs to be. And a couple verses later, in verse 25, he says, don't just walk and be led by Spirit. He says, live by the Spirit. That word live means it becomes the energizing force of your life, the source of life itself. And then he says in that same verse, keep in step with, or constantly guided by the Spirit. That was a military term. Marching orders, keeping in rank. You cannot be guided by the Spirit without living in Him. Our life with God is a spiritual life, not a fleshly life. One commentator put it like this, walking by the Spirit is the outward manifestation in action and speech of living by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit is the root. Walking by the Spirit is the fruit. And that fruit is nothing less than the practical reproduction of the character and conduct of Christ in the lives of his people. Phil Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade said, No truth is more important to the believer than an understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how to be filled and controlled by Him. Because like our salvation itself, the power of Christian living is a work of grace. It's God's work. We choose whether we will live and follow. Walk in the Spirit, Paul had said, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. And that's the true nature of the spirit-filled life, not speaking in tongues and performing miracles. Where is our focus? In the verses following this, Paul then gives a contrast between what walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh look like. It's a contrast between the spirit-filled, spirit-led life and sinful nature. Between acts and fruit that God produces in us. In other words, between what we do and what we are. And so in verses 19 to 21, you have a whole list of actions. The laws were created to control. The acts of the flesh are obvious, it says. Sexual immorality, it's a broad term for adultery, fornication, prostitution. It's the word we get pornography from. Impurity, that was a medical term that used to refer to an infected, oozing wound. It means things which make us unclean, which separate us from God referring to the things we watch and think about, the things we fill our mind with that separate us from God. 
and debauchery, referring to unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. Idolatry, for the Jews, that was the root of all other sins, putting things in place of God. And witchcraft, he says, literally the use of drugs, getting high as evidence of the Spirit's power. And then it lists a whole series of what we often consider lesser sins, but God doesn't because they're listed with these. Hatred, as opposed to love, something that seeks to destroy and take revenge. Discord means arguing and quarreling, a direct result of competition, having to be on top and have our way. Jealousy, wanting what others have, always trying to get our fair share. Fits of rage, a bad temper, lashing out when we get mad. Selfish ambition, pure selfishness, putting myself, my family, my interest above others. Dissension, that's being argumentative, causing divisions. Factions, that's the word we get heresy from, picking and choosing the things we want to believe to suit ourselves. Envy, which is what Euripides called the greatest of all diseases among men, not wanting what others have, but simply not wanting them to have it. Drunkenness, losing control through substance abuse. Orgies or unrestrained passion. And for those who think we're above all that, he says, and the like, as if to include everything else. He could have mentioned gossip, Lying, greed, so many other things. All of these things the law is meant to control, standing in opposition to God. And while we may not be guilty of most, who of us have not, have not given in at some point? Laws are meant to control our actions. Grace changes our hearts. So Paul says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need the change of heart. We need the grace to work within us. Having the law may provide some control over our impulses for a time, but it doesn't change them. For this, there needs to be a change of action, a focus from our actions to the fruit of the Spirit that only comes from God. So Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these kind of things, there's no law. You cannot make a law to love someone. It flows from who you are inside. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, he says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That's where walking in the Spirit stands in contrast. Notice when Paul speaks of the acts of the sinful nature, the laws, or he speaks of the working of the Spirit, the fruit, the natural outgrowth of the Spirit in our life that bring change. Because in Paul, in Christ, Paul says, we become a new creation. Too often the discussion about being filled or led by the Spirit focuses on the dramatic portrayed often as those who are walking closest to God or those who have these dramatic gifts of tongues and miracles. But the context here is not gifts, it's fruit. Those led by the Spirit, those walking in the Spirit, living by the Spirit, 
bearing the marks of the Spirit are the ones who have the fruit in their life. The context is moral and ethical. In Corinthians, when it talks about the miraculous, Paul calls them unspiritual and infants because they're lacking the morals of love. In Ephesians, which is often quoted, when it says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, the context, again, is morals and right living. John Stott said, what then is the evidence of the Spirit's indwelling in fullness? As with baptism of the Spirit, so with fullness, the chief evidence is moral, not miraculous. It consists of the fruit, not the gifts. Fruit is a characteristic of God's nature. The Spirit is in us, God is in us, and it reflects. Not incidentals, but essentials. Growing part of our lives to love, joy, peace, patience. Look at the life of Christ. Those are the characteristics God wants to develop in us as we walk with him. The laws are meant to control our actions. Fruit is a natural outgrowth of who we are. And Jesus did say it's by our fruit that we're going to be known as his followers. And with Christ in the school of prayer, Andrew Murray said, the Christian life is no longer a vain struggle to live right, but rather a resting in Christ to find strength in him as our life. It means God's working, bearing fruit in us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there are many works of the flesh, only one fruit of the spirit. Works are done by human hands. Fruit thrusts upward and grows all unbeknown to the tree which bears it. Works are dead, fruit is alive, and bears seed, which will bring forth more fruit. Works can subsist on their own, but fruit cannot exist apart from the tree. Fruit is always miraculous, the created. It is never the result of the willing, but always a growth. The fruit of the Spirit is a gift from God. It's grace, and only He can produce it. There's no room for boasting here, but only for an ever more intimate union with him. And that's what Paul is calling for when he talks about living by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. We don't overcome our desires by willpower, but by God. Where's our focus? You know, AA stresses you don't have to stay sober the rest of your life. You just have to do it today. One day at a time. That's the nature of fruit. Walking with God today. Don't worry about next week or next year, but today. Because he's already done the work for us. That's grace. In an article several years ago that Charles Coulson wrote for Christianity Today, he wrote about the power of grace versus the law to transform lives, specifically of convicts. He's the founder of Prison Fellowship. And he talks about how incapable the law is to transform the lives of prisoners. It's something God's able to do in his power. So he wrote about a prison, a notorious prison in Brazil, that at this time, he says, 20 years previously, the government had such a hard time with it, they finally decided to turn it over to two Christians to run it. And they renamed it Humaita, and they sought to run it by Christian principles. With the exception of two full-time staff when Charles Colson visited, all the work done by that prison was done by inmates. Families outside the prison would adopt an inmate to work with during and after their terms of imprisonment. And Colson wrote, When I visited Hamaita, I found the inmates smiling, 
particularly the murderer who held the keys and opened the gates to let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from the Psalms and Proverbs. My guide, the murderer, escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told me that block houses only a single inmate. And as we reached the end of a long concrete corridor and he put the key in the lock, he paused and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. And slowly he swung open the massive door and I saw the punishment, or I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell. A crucifix beautifully carved by the Hamites, the prisoners. And there was Jesus hanging on the cross. And my guide said, he's doing time for the rest of us. That's grace. Christ does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Something the law will never do. Christ sets us free so we don't have to remain in bondage to it, Paul says. Live by the Spirit instead. And you find a new way of life. But it comes down to what are we focusing on? Simply what we don't do? Or who it is that gives us life? Who it is that provides grace for life? What about you? What is the guiding focus of your life? Is it simply trying to do things or not do things? Or is it really to know God? To experience the peace and the life that he offers? That's the message of Galatians. That's the gospel. To accept God's grace. And as we close in a moment with our hymn of commitment, it's an invitation if you have not received God's grace to open your heart to him, to allow him to change you from the inside. Not just to tell you what to do and what not to do, but to make you a new creation. So as the worship team comes, will you join me in prayer? Our Father, as we thank you for your grace, which sets us free, not simply to do as we please, but free to experience life as you created it to be. Help us to realize, God, that we cannot, by our own effort, work our way to you, but rather you sent your own son down to us to welcome us and to bring us to you. Teach us what it means to walk by his spirit, Lord, in the freeness that provides through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Find us together.